You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Uh, in rainy Sydney, I'm fine. Thanks, Giles. And we've been, uh, our podcast this year, uh, we've, been, we've had a great uh, list of guests, haven't we, if, we do, if I do say so myself. And we've done everything from Thinking Local with uh, Adam Clark at uh, Newcastle City Council to the Chief Executive of AGL through to uh, uh, the Young Engineer, of the Queensland Young Engineer of the Year, talking, talking about... Um, uh, control systems, and now we're going to look at the whole global uh, uh, setting uh, with with our guest this week. Absolutely. Now, it was an interview that you did this um, earlier today with Logan Goldie Scott. Um, he's one of the um, very uh, most senior analysts at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which um, most people would understand is one of the pre or probably the preeminent um, research company in the world focusing on the energy transition, be it on the grids, on um, electric vehicles, hydrogen, and um, and other things. But um, David, I think we're going to get straight into this interview. This is David's interview with um, Logan Goldie-Scott from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And David started off by asking Logan um, just a little bit about Bloomberg itself. Thanks very much for joining the uh, podcast. Could you just tell me, as the head of Clean Power Research, I thought I might start a little bit about uh, Bloomberg NEF itself. Um, I guess I might ask, how many analysts are covering the uh, Clean Power Research at BNEF and, and has that number been growing very much? Sure. So, so Bloomberg NEF has around 250 uh, sort of analysts at the moment, um, and that's yeah, that's 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 grown significantly since since the company was founded back in 2004, and uh, since I joined back in 2009. Um, but those those analysts uh, also end up working with many of our colleagues across the wider Bloomberg organization, um, which is increasingly important. Uh, sort of today, really, it's more, 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 more than ever, as sort of ESG and broader sustainability questions have become more relevant for uh, sort of the, the financial audience. Yes, I, I think that's right. It's become clear to me as, as a financial analyst of over 30 years uh, practice just how much more important uh, the right to be a company, uh, the ESG sort of side of things has, has grown. Um, and I guess demand for BNEF uh, services must have, have have grown accordingly. I mean, I guess clean power, the way I think about it is that if decarbonisation, uh, you know, coal, oil and gas are cumulatively, you know, my number's about US $3 trillion at point of production each year of value and decarbonisation implies all of that has to go away over some period of time or the vast majority. And this is going to provide uh, a fantastic environment for, for research generally. 
in, 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 indeed, and it's is 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 a fantastic transition to have been part of, and uh, and, and I'm certainly sort of looking to remain part of it uh, for the for the coming years. And and just to put some context on that sort of investment number, uh, Bloomberg NEF last year recorded uh, for the first time um, over half a trillion dollars of investment in sort of energy transition, which includes um, investment in uh, clean power capacity, but also in uh, electric vehicles, um, a, a small amount in hydrogen and other sectors. And so we're, we're, we're already, um, if we add a decimal place, we're, we're, we're already talking in the, in the trillions now on what used to be referred to as alternative energy. And so I want to come back to EVs and storage, uh, which topics that I think are, are very important. And in Australia, we've got a, a big focus for one reason and another on hydrogen. But as you, uh, as, as the head of Clean Power, what are the, do you think are going to be the topics that uh, your clients should be focusing on and that you will be focusing on o- over the next year or two? Where are your priorities? So on the, on the power side, I oversee our coverage on solar, wind, energy storage, and what we term decentralized energy, um, as well as looking at how sort of power systems change and, and, and how network design needs to change as well. So I'll, I'll limit my areas of interest to, 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 to those pieces, um, whereas colleagues could definitely speak on sort of uh, agriculture or buildings and industry more broadly. Um, but the, there are three things that, that really interest me at the moment and in that I think and I hope will sort of appeal to appeal to our clients and to your audience is the first is the implications for the power system of decarbonizing the rest of the economy. So de- decarbonizing all those parts that I just promised I wouldn't talk about. Um, but for, for me, that's that's fascinating because it, it changes the problem that you're trying to solve for. So a lot of the early modeling that we've done, and we've we've done uh, sort of um, capacity additions modeling for for for, for years now at Bloomberg NEF, um, but a lot of that fundamentally needs to change because you need to account for all of these uh, new sources of demand, which have um, very different demand profiles. So I think that 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 will be fascinating as one area to watch. The the second is the evolution of global supply chains. Um, as decarbonization moves from the periphery um, of sort of government's thinking and of um, investors and other stakeholders thinking, as it moves from that periphery to the to the center to become sort of core to um, ad- advanced nations' economies, suddenly the question around um, who will capture that economic opportunity, where will those jobs go, um, and, and where will that value be sort of accrued, suddenly that becomes much more important for, uh, for, for for individuals. And in the third piece, which we've touched on um, slightly already, is just this broader interest in sustainability from uh, from companies and from investors, uh, which, which, which I don't think um, was nearly as commonplace even a year ago. That's a fantastic range of topics and, and you know, I'm sure we could talk for a, a couple of hours before even getting right into it. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> and it is a, it is a fantastic uh, range of topics. But I just uh, you mentioned one of those was the supply chain, and I guess I, if I just put my Australian hat on for the moment, we are the third largest uh, exporter in the world of energy at the moment, and of course it's all thermal energy. 
and it seems to me that wind and solar um, are going to be much more widely available, much more democratic in a sense, or there are going to be far more suppliers and countries in their national interest would like to control their own energy supply, or at least I, I imagine they would if it was economic. And Australia's energy mostly goes to Asia. Um, do you, would you have any uh, advice to the Australian government or comments that you wanted to make as to how we should be thinking about Australia should position itself in, in, in that light? I, I, I think we can. It's it's important to 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 segment the sectors um, that will that will sort of uh, all all come together as part of this sort of decarbonisation sort of uh, puzzle, and to segment those. Uh, into those where Australia could have a sort of a, a, a role or has clear advantages in terms of um, uh, access to raw materials or manufacturing know-how um, or other sources of value creation. Uh, I mean, also Australia in, in many ways is at the cutting edge in terms of understanding sort of flexibility uh, requirements and integrating renewables. And so there's, there's certainly sort of IP and value that, that, that could be associated or that could be uh, generated there and then sort of uh, um, exported elsewhere, um, but but at a sort of simple, more more tangible area, um, we can take the battery supply chain as an example. So o Australia only ranked eleventh in our twenty twenty battery supply chain uh, sort of country ranking, and in in it came second overall for raw materials. So it, it it's coming at this from a, a position of strength. It, it mines all of the metals required to develop a domestic battery supply chain in commercial quantities, except for graphite. But it it, it fell short on on a, on a few key key areas that, in many ways, are are within Australian governments and uh, Australian states uh, state governments their control. So it fell short on the lack of domestic demand for batteries, no, notably the lack of domestic demand for electric vehicles. Um, fell short on the, the sort of the presence of local um, battery manufacturing, um, local component manufacturing, and also um, even some of the, 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 the processing of those raw, raw materials. At the moment, much of that processing um, happens in China, not in Australia. And that could be, um, that is something within a country's control to change. And, and it also fell short on environmental considerations where in the work we undertook, we looked at the grid intensity of countries um, because we, we recognize that the manufacturers um, want to understand the emissions footprint of the products they make. And, um, and so countries that have uh, sort of lower grid intensity um, from sort of an emission standpoint uh, scored scored higher. So, so that's just one example of how um, Australia um, may see exports of of certain certain sort of materials and products uh, decline as part of um, the the transition to a low carbon energy economy or low carbon economy even, um, but there, there there certainly are identifiable opportunities um, that with the with the right sort of um, sort of actions um, Australia could take advantage of. I, I, I'm definitely going to come back to that, and I just I, I just want to ask about hydrogen and uh, e even um, uh, um, uh, ammonia. Do, do you see those as being an industry that um, you know 
what are the financial prospects for hydrogen exporters do you think so so to to understand that i think it's it, it's important to put the hydrogen industry sort of um, or hydrogen installations into in, in, into context because it, it does receive or it is receiving and in some ways rightly so um, a huge amount of attention at the moment but we we, we need to understand um, sort of its its scale today and, and so last year electrolyzer shipments um, edged up to sort of a record of 200 megawatts globally. <laughs> Um, so this is this is really a, a tiny amount, um, but we did track an additional 17 gigawatts of uh, of capacity in in the pipeline, and um, and and so we we do we do expect this um, even in the near term this 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 market to to grow, and in that longer term outlook is is is, is certainly stronger, but it's important to understand. Um, I, I think where hydrogen will be used, uh, that 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 ends up being key. And in paraphrasing my my former boss and founder of New Energy Finance, uh, Michael Liebreich, sort of hydrogen is going to have to win use case by use case. Um, so it will have to beat the incumbent technology, and it also has to beat every other zero carbon option for that use case. Uh, and so, from an exporter's perspective, having a clear sense on of where that demand will be. So potential use cases exist in aviation and shipping and providing resilience to the power system. Um, but so, so understanding where that demand will be and how, how to best uh, sort of uh, to meet that demand, I think is gonna be incredibly important and not chasing uh, segments and strategies where, where we don't really see a future for hydrogen such as in passenger, uh, passenger vehicles. Yeah, I, I, I must say I agree with all of those points. And my concern as an Australian is that you can have offshore wind in Asia or solar or onshore wind uh, that could produce hydrogen locally rather than, you know, and uh, rather than producing it in, in Australia itself. But I, I guess that's a we'll have a long time to see the evolution of that. So on the other hand, right now, uh, the global electric vehicle industry seems on the point of uh, uh, seriously taking off with a number of companies like Volkswagen essentially, to my mind, betting the company's future on it. Uh, and I guess Hyundai in South Korea would be another to make a big bet. Uh, what, how has BNEF seen the outlook for EVs over the next uh, uh, you know, one to three years? It's I, I I sort of agree with how you framed it there. Um, the 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 growth, especially in the last year or so, the growth in this segment has been um, truly remarkable. Where uh, last year, global passenger electric vehicle sales they increased forty seven percent globally to more than three million in twenty twenty, um, and a, a lot of a lot of this was in was in Europe as sort of automakers such as Volkswagen. Um, and, and others push to meet CO2 um, emissions targets. Um, and we, we, but, but we don't see this as a, a flash in the pan. Um, we expect Europe to yet again be the biggest electric vehicle market this year in 2021. And, um, uh, but it's, it's, a close, it's, it's a close competition between Europe and China. Um, and we expect sales to grow in all of the countries that we track. So reaching 4.4 million 
passenger electric vehicle sales globally um, this year alone. And, and so I, I think we're we're we we are very much on the uh, sort of uh, on 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 the cusp on the cusp uh, here. Where and, and actually just to just to give an example from from Europe again because I, I think that's been one of the most exciting electric vehicle markets in in recent months. Where so one in ten new passenger cars bought in Europe last year came with a plug, and that would have been unheard of, um, or would have been met with sort of widespread sort of ridicule um, even a couple of years ago, where sort of industry observers were were used to talking around talking about sort of electric vehicle um, penetration of new vehicle sales being sort of one or two percent. Um, whereas now in, in Europe, it was one in 10 passenger cars uh, last year. So I, I think this this segment is 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 maturing. Um, key drivers include policy, uh, which is sort of, um, sort of crit- critically important, um, cheaper and better batteries, increased model availability, and charging infrastructure, and and you, we can start to see um, indications of other countries, so out, outside of China, outside of Europe, um, looking at these key drivers and, uh, and, and working their way to sort of create the space for electric vehicles to grow. Um, so, in, in, inc- incredibly, incredibly exciting time for the industry. I do think it is, and it, it would bring me back to the point about uh, the integration of all the different technologies into society at large. You know, uh, battery, battery, uh, EV to the to the home, and vice versa, and solar on the roof. All the things which are dear to uh, us in Australia. But uh, just before I get on to batteries and battery technology and how to get below a hundred dollars, which I uh, a kilowatt hour US, which I think is one of the things uh, BNF has been talking about. I just wanted to ask about Japan, where I think the debate is quite vigorous at the moment. And Japan, historically, as, as I look at it, has had a focus on hydrogen as opposed to batteries in, in, in the passenger vehicle industry. How, how are you seeing uh, thinking in Japan at the moment? I, I, I think there's... There's increasing recognition in Japan, um, or increasing consensus around decarbonisation uh, more, more more generally. The the pathway to do that within within transport is is certainly less clear cut in Japan um, in the eyes of major automakers and in, in their in, in sort of um, in policymakers. Uh, I, I think Japan is one of those markets where there there, there does still appear to be um, li- lingering hope uh, resting on hydrogen for passenger vehicles. Uh, clearly, the presence of sort of Toyota in the markets and Toyota's um, confidence in the outlook for passenger uh, fuel cell vehicles sort of um, s- sort of lends itself to 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 that. But uh, but it but 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 in our view, um, really, as we as we sort of look, look look further out. Um, it, it is clear that electric vehicles will be will make up the bulk of passenger vehicle sales, and um, I think that will that will hold true in in markets even that appear resistant today. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and and I think the fundamental reason is is it not um, that essentially you get more. Uh, 
work energy out of uh, out of a kilowatt hour of input energy uh, in electric vehicles than you do uh, with fuel cells, although that mightn't matter so much if you're importing your energy like Japan in the first place. In, in, indeed, but but I think there are there are other advantages um, that or there are other strengths that electric vehicles will, will 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 ultimately sort of benefit from as well. Where it there there's unlikely to be room in each of these uh, sort of demand segments for automakers to invest in multiple competing technologies. Um, it will simply become sort of prohibitively expensive, uh, and, and and you see this with. Um, with auto automotive uh, sort of uh, suppliers at the moment. So uh, Con Continental, a couple of years ago, uh, sort of announced that it was uh, um, sort of ceasing or scaling scaling back R&D in internal combustion engine uh, sort of technologies because um, there, there's sort of finite R&D budget available uh, and, it, and it wanted to sort of give itself the best chance to sort of be competitive in, uh, over, over the coming years. And, and I, I suspect automakers that currently have their um, sort of are that are currently investing in multiple different sort of uh, technology pathways uh, for uh, for specific sort of uh, demand segments I, I suspect at some point they they, they will start to, uh, to, to have to make some tough choices um, to really focus on one or the other and in in Europe and the the United States the major automotive markets, um, for for sort of leading leading car companies, um, it, it does appear that the direction of travel is passenger electric vehicles, um, and I think that will in, inform decisions for automakers and and their governments further down the line. Yeah, I, I agree with that strongly. I think there are all sorts of issues with hydrogen refueling, and and certainly in Australia, uh, it's impossible to imagine we could support two or three different supply chains simultaneously. Uh, internal combustion, hydrogen and electric. Uh, uh, and, and it's nice to retain options and flexibility, but in the end, uh, making the right choices is, is, is the best outcome. Let's just talk a little bit uh, about batteries. Um, um, BNEF has mentioned that the, I think the um, sort of best in class automotive battery pack costs uh, are, are down around, I think, US $130 a kilowatt hour at the moment, and that there's a reasonably clear pathway to 100, but that getting beyond 100 is going to be difficult. And uh, then there are these sort of, there's always so many battery technologies out there, but uh, silicon anodes and uh, solid state lithium anodes seem to be two step changes or maybe they're just on the path. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the outlook for automotive batteries. And then after that, I also wanted to ask a little bit about stationary storage and, and, and the relationship between automotive and stationary storage. Of, 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 of course. And, and so lot, lot, last year, so in 2020, our sector sector wide volume weighted price for battery uh, lithium ion battery packs was one hundred and thirty seven dollars a kilowatt hour and and so that's including um, sort of uh, prices disclosed to us in an anonymous survey for automotive and and stationary applications the The volume weighted price for battery electric vehicle um, battery cells in in in, in twenty twenty so 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 not packs at this point but cells. 
uh, was a hundred a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. So so we're already um, we're we're already sort of um, really hurtling down this sort of uh, this 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 cost trage- uh, cost trajectory, and w- we see a a clear path to breaking that hundred dollar a kilowatt hour um, sort of threshold at the pack level um by well in by by 2024 essentially i think by 2024 we say um that the volume weighted average battery pack price will is expected to be around 94 dollars a kilowatt hour and and so so we we already we we, we see a, uh, a path to those sort of um those near near-term cost reductions now be beyond that and once you're past that threshold you're, you're completely correct. It, it does become more, uh, more, more, more challenging to sort of uh, to maintain that pace of uh, of, of cost reductions, and and, and, and that's where um, the the pathways become less clear. But the the opportunity, or, or what I find fascinating around that is, and I'm arguably more more optimistic at that point, despite the lack of clarity on pathway. Because there there are various different technology options available to automotive companies to battery manufacturers um, that 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 not all of them have to succeed uh, in in order, but 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 a few of them could succeed, and uh, that will help the industry sort of maintain that trajectory. And so we 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 can talk about some of the some of the specifics, but you can see the sort of increased interest in. Uh, silicon anodes, uh, li- uh, lithium metal anodes, uh, solid, solid solid state chemistries, um, different uh, cell uh, cell architectures, um, sort of improved manufacturing techniques and sort of different manufacturing techniques. All, all of this, for for me, actually, despite the 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 lack of clarity on on which company will win, um, all of this suggests that the the outlook is 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 fairly bright and uh, from a technology standpoint. Yes, uh, and I guess as an analyst, you can, uh, in a sense, just r- rely on um, uh, the uh, the growth the growth rate sort of thing, the the reduction in unit cost, the learning rate. Um, you know, you, uh, that's the great thing about it. You don't have to know uh, how the learning rate works. You just have to know that it does. I I think I think that's that's it. Where um, there there are many who are fairly dismissive. Um, of learning rates and of experience curves, and and they they, they certainly are not sufficient um, uh, on on their own to uh, to tell you what will happen in the future or or to um, explain and certainly not to explain how it will happen. What what we do at Bloomberg NEF is we 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 do place um, uh, we we do see a great deal of value in in learning rates, but we supplement this with a bottom up uh, cost approach, and we do this for. For batteries, but but also with uh, other technologies such as wind and solar, um, where we we have a, a model that's available to clients, um, affectionately known as the the Batman model uh, for sort of battery manufacturing, um, and I, I can credit a colleague with uh, uh, with 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 the name. Um, but uh, we 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 have that, and, and we we use this model, and our, our clients can use it to actually play with different configurations. Um, to to compare the the, the cost trajectory um, if 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 a company uh, does decide to go down the sort of uh, the solid state route 
um, if it's manufacturing at smaller scale or if uh, raw, raw material prices increase. And so for, for material prices, for instance, like we, we used the, uh, the, the Batman model um, as a scenario last year to say, what if prices returned to the highs they were at in sort of March 2018? Um, and or, or, or sort of what would happen if they sort of uh, fell, um, fell significantly sort of uh, to, to, to the lows, I guess, uh, sort of back in sort of uh, April 2015? And, and what we found is that sustained sort of, uh, and this is where bottom-up approach really helps, because we found that sustained high prices would not derail the electric vehicle industry. Um, sort of at most, they would delay average prices reaching $100 a kilowatt hour by two years. And so what, what we find is that this, this was a, a, a wonderful sort of way, is, is a wonderful tool to complement uh, the 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 top down approach and um, it allows us to tell to tell stories about the industry um, that are sort of pertinent to um, sort of observations from the market today. Like I've taken up a lot of your time and I, I, I quite seriously would could talk for three hours, but I'm sure you wouldn't wish to. But uh, I, I, there are two more topics that I want to cover and just staying with batteries for a moment I mean uh, it seems to me that um, it's quite difficult to expand say production of lithium in a hurry and also you have to build these battery factories and and more generally I think charging infrastructure it's you don't want to buy a car that can charge at I don't know 10 kilowatts when everyone else is charging at 100 kilowatts but perhaps I could just ask uh, uh, about the uh, raw, the, the supply chain, the number of factories. Are there going to be enough battery factories and are there going to be enough uh, uh, lithium mines and the like uh, to keep up with demand coming from the vehicles? Sure. So, so I think your question actually has sort of two dynamics within it. So where, where will batteries be made and, and, and will there be enough factories? And then separately, sort of, will there be sort of sufficient raw materials and sort of component supply uh, to keep up with accelerating demand? Um, and so, on the on the second point around raw material availability, like we we believe keeping up with demand uh, between sort of 2021 uh, up until 2025, 2026, uh, where you sort of has have visibility on 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 sort of new supply coming online. Is is challenging for sure, but it's attainable. Um, it requires uh, an in increase, um, or it requires sort of sustained and increased levels of investment sort of throughout the value chain, and in, a lot of that investment needs to start. Um, sort of that that activity needs to sort of begin begin now. Essentially, um, we we are we we are beginning to see that happen though. Which again suggests that the the market is sort of reacting, um, reacting just in time in order to 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 ensure that raw material availability is not the constraint on electric vehicle uptake. So it it will be it will be tight for lithium hydroxide, for uh, class one nickel, for cobalt. In twenty twenty one, for instance, we we see the markets being in balance, but but it's tight. And uh, and you need you need things to think 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 things to go smoothly. Um, the the second, or I guess what what I'd call the the, the first piece was around. Um, there's there's more of a geopolitical angle I think around the 
cell manufacturing and sort of whether there will be enough um, in, in, in enough factories to meet demand. Because with with this sector, it's unlike solar in that you ideally would want to manufacture um, battery battery cells close to where they'll ultimately be used, so close to demand centers. And so there's there's much greater pressure now from leading automotive markets such as Europe and the US to create battery supply chains um, sort of domestically or sort of in their territories, and and, and that makes sense. And uh, but but I think that 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 is also the that adds another complication um, in terms of making sure that timing is aligned um, over over the coming years. That's the long answer. the The short answer is, uh, yes, we are, we are. Yeah, we 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 we're, we're looking at a sort of a unprecedented uptake, but it's tight. It's tight, and I can say as an uh, investment banking analyst with a long history of Australia doing commodity uh, prices that. Uh, you want to buy the commodity supplier when the spot price is above the analyst forecast price and vice versa. So that's a, <laughs> a, a rule of thumb. And and you also mentioned building the battery uh, packs near the source of demand. And the source of demand is, of course, the car assembly plant. And for me, this is why Australia as a battery pack manufacturing site uh, centre sort of has issues. And I'm I could support a case that says we should continue to focus on our comparative advantage in raw material production. Um, my last question today is, is going to switch back to uh, solar and wind uh, bulk energy. And we're a lot further along the experience curve uh, for those technologies. And uh, um, and so it's harder to come down it because to, to double the installed global volume takes a lot more now. What what do you see is uh, what does BNEF see as the prospects for wind and solar deployment over the next couple of years and, and, and the cost outlook? So, so I mean, for 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 both technologies, um, we 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 see cost coming down and performance improving in 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 general. So for 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 wind, I for for wind, for instance, I I think it becomes really exciting when you start looking at. Um, change, changing performance, uh, sort of increased hub height, uh, in, 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 um, increased sort of uh, rotor diameter, which actually makes the levelized cost of electricity um, ultimately lower. So, that, so there, there are different ways that you can sort of um, re, re, review the data, uh, but 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 not, nonetheless, for, for for both technologies, um, we, we we see further room for. Performance improvements and technology cost reductions. Now, the the the, the important thing though is that um, at, at some point that will matter matter less, or the the levelized cost of electricity, or the um, sort of uh, absolute capex of a solar or, 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 or wind project will will, will 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 matter less than what accompanies it. Um, and I, I think a, a lot of what will determine the future generation mix in different countries. Um, will, will will be dictated by what what is the flexibility resource um, that uh, that best enables wind and solar, um, rather than uh, sort of uh, further cost reductions in wind and solar themselves. And, and this is where storage and pumped hydro and other technologies sort of come come into the mix. So you, you we're, we're beyond the point where um, we can really think about some of these technologies uh, purely in isolation. 
I, I agree with that. And I think uh, for, for those of us that do the modelling out there, you have to uh, be very clear in your mind about what the lowest system cost is and what the lowest exactly. cost to a, to an individual. Uh, you know, it's a different thing to firm a system up to firming up an individual uh, demand piece. Uh, and, and this is something that I, you know, the role of planning and who, who's responsible for what. Uh, look, I, I said that was the last question, but I, I have to ask one question about offshore wind and I suppose Asia in particular. Uh, is, is BNEF, I mean, how do you see the prospects for offshore wind for those countries that don't uh, have a landmass generally or, or other resource? It's 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 a great question and um, one that uh, continues to be a challenge when using sort of a con conventional capacity addition modeling uh, models. Uh, but it is sent. I think Europe again, as, as as we talked about with electric vehicles, Europe offers some some fascinating insights uh, that, that that could well be replicated across across Asia Pacific or or in other markets, um, even even in the U.S., where recent recently sort of uh, European countries and at the sort of Europe wide level, um, there has been a sort of a clearer commitment to offshore wind. Um, and sort of facilitation of permitting, uh, permitting and sort of uh, in, in interconnections, et cetera, um, that actually has given the industry a huge amount of confidence in the role that offshore wind will play um, in that market. And in, in a, I, th I think that could well be could well be sort of replicated elsewhere. Um, it, offshore wind looks in many ways and in its size, uh, for instance, looks more like thermal assets. Uh, than it does sort of residential solar. And um, I think there's, we, we do see sort of greater role for, um, or we're seeing countries explore a greater role for central planning um, and uh, sort of other sort of supportive mechanisms, um, not, not including subsidies, but other supporting mechanisms that help offshore wind sort of get to market and play the role that these governments believe it can play. And so I, I think the capacity additions for offshore wind will be influenced by different factors to what really drove sort of res residential solar or even utility scale solar uptake. Um, but it certainly has a has a role to play um, in many of these systems, especially if you start thinking around the, the huge increase in um, sort of power generating capacity required to economize uh, to decarbonize economies, not just the power system. No, I, I completely agree. We'll have to wind it up there. And you've struck a note that's become increasingly dear to my heart at the end, which is not so much the subsidies, although they can be important, but it's the confidence that the appropriate signal from government can supply that that will let the private sector do its investment if they just believe that they're uh, you know, going to um, it, it, that the government is on their side, kind of thing, or at least even-handed. Uh, Logan Goldie Scott, it's been a fantastic interview, one I've uh, immensely enjoyed. We've covered a lot of stuff, and that's only appropriate because BNEF covers a lot of stuff in, in a huge amount of depth and detail, and is clearly uh, the most widely cited resource in the industry. Uh, so I, I hope things go well for you, and thank you very much for joining the Energy Insider podcast. Thank, thank you so much for having me and have a great rest of your day. And that was Logan Goldie-Scott from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, 
David, as you say, um, probably worth talking to for several hours longer, but some really interesting insights um, into the state of the markets, big grids, electric vehicles, and also hydrogen. Um, what leapt out for you? Uh, I think, Giles, what leapt out for me was this focus on, on well, the fact that there's 250 analysts uh, covering the thing <laughs> makes <laughs> me realise how hard it is for competition. It just shows what a smart move it was getting BNEF going. Um, yes, and I'd, like, I'd just like to point out that that's more analysts that work for Renew Economy. Even ah, uh, yes, well, that's <laughs> right, uh, and 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 yet and yet we we just about keeping up. Um, look. <laughs> Thanks uh, to your help, David. Anyway, on you go. Uh, and I think there's this thing about global supply chains, which is becoming uh, particularly in the USA and Europe. These guys are thinking, well, we're doing all the work on uh, getting uh, electric vehicles, say, going. Uh, we don't, we want to make sure we get the economic benefits out of it. And then there was the message as to the extent that that applies to Australia. Of course, it's, in some ways, it's a silly question to ask uh, someone, a, a Scottish person living in San Francisco, what's the, what should Australia be doing? Because Australians can work out for ourselves what we need to be doing. But I asked the question, and the point was that Australia has a lot of the things needed to be quite a successful, I think, in renewable energy. Well, I don't think that's, I think most of us think that. And 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 overwhelming thing I've seen, and we saw it so much with Matt Keane, and we'll have to probably mention him again in this podcast, uh, it's just having the confidence that the private sector gets when, when the government is uh, prepared to sort of say, yes, we're in favour of the general concept. Let's, it's whether they just... Yes. Hmm? Let, let, yeah, let's yes. let, get on with it, you guys in the private sector. And you know what? When they get a message like that, they do. No, look, that's absolutely right. And you know, talking about supply constraints, we've heard um, people like Tesla talk about delays in the um, Tesla Semi, which is their electric truck. Um, that's now not going to come out until a year later, simply because Tesla can't source enough uh, battery cells. But as you point out, with Australia has a fantastic um, resource of all the sort of minerals and all the components of batteries and electric vehicles that you could possibly want. There have been some identification that this is actually something Australia should do. But once again, as you point out. Um, without the signal to the market that um, the government actually likes these these new technologies and every evidence seems to suggest that they don't or they're very suspicious of it, um, things are not going to progress as, as quickly as they might. And the other point that Logan was making is about this whole of uh, energy economy type approach uh, and thinking beyond the grid, if you like, or thinking of the, the grid's role in helping to decarbonise the whole economy and also about the integration of the various bits, which again rings very true in Australia with our high and increasing penetration of behind the meter, uh, you know, and so the natural ability to say uh, charge electric uh, cars during the day when, when they're parked around doing nothing uh, and, and the ability to integrate all the infrastructure. And I think AEMO uh, has had, you know, is also thinking about that. It had a, a planning document out talking about all the challenges, but also I think the opportunities. Mm, absolutely. David, that was a terrific interview with um, Logan Goldie Scott. So well done on that and well guided. Um, some of the other things that are happening around the place, just in Australia, we should just sort of quickly touch on before we close off the podcast. Um, 
I guess one of the striking things, I mean, look, New South Wales is kind of front of centre, both politically for political reasons and for other reasons. Wiltshire Energy um, has popped its head up this week talking about building its own transmission line to the very considerable project which they've got in mind in the New England region and linking that with um, with Liddell, um, the centre around Liddell. So I, don't, I couldn't quite work out whether that means speaks of frustration on their part um, with the dual processes, the renewable energy zone led by New South Wales, or the general regulatory environment for major transmission lines under the um, I, under the um, integrated system plan. But um, certainly quite interesting. They're actually trying to get a private consortium together. Uh, yes, and so you know that would be like the Westfield of um, of renewable energy zones, where you essentially own the whole franchise and you can like sublease to some tenants who might own a solar block or something like that. Uh, and extract rents from them uh, for every kilowatt hour they uh, they produce. I mean, this is one of the two or three themes that are going on in this whole standard industry themes. Uh, one of them is that, uh, uh, you know, this projects are getting bigger and bigger uh, and, you know, you're integrating storage and transmission and the, and, and the uh, wind and the solar, and, and it's big dollars. I mean, at the same time, as there's also room at the smaller end of the market for, for all the behind the behind the meter stuff and it's the usual argument can you afford to get uh, stuck in the middle while all of that's going on mm. and look elsewhere in new south wales a bit of drama this week um just last week uh, matt Keane appointed malcolm turnbull to head this new um, advisory council on zero emissions basically you can call him a climate czar uh, five days later he's no longer the climate czar he's been um given the punt um thanks to some pretty ferocious feedback from the lnp and um, murdoch media well, I don't know. It's just that. I, I mean, in all honesty, I think Turnbull brought this on himself. I mean, it's it's dumb, right, to get out there and start talking about getting rid of it. It's dumb politically, right? What Matt Keane is good at, in my opinion, uh, it's politics. It's building a consensus. It's getting Labor and the Nationals and the Liberals and the Greens to all agree that his plan for New South Wales is a good plan. That's what politics is about, getting things done. Uh, and and for Turnbull to get out there and, and shout from the rooftop something we all know to be true that you've got to get rid of all the coal uh, in New South Wales and Queensland that of course that's true but why shout it just just the five days into the job what uh, you know Turnbull is a dum dum politically he should never have gone into politics uh, it, it should have stuck to business which he's probably quite good at. Uh, David, that's a fascinating thing. And look, um, I find myself sort of unable to argue with you other than point out that it's not a very good look, though, because um, it certainly sort of suggests that... Um, and I take your point about Matt Keane um, being very smart with the way he's rolled out his own energy policy and the um, and, and that infrastructure plan. He has got consensus from all sides. In fact, he's the only person, I think, in Australia so far to actually sort of have everyone on board um, what he's trying to do. Um, and, and he acted decisively, uh, you know, when it became clear that, that Turnbull, Turnbull was a problem. And look, the, the, the right wing of the Liberal Party, they loathe Turnbull with an absolute passion. They think he is a traitor to the Liberal cause, as they see it. You know, you can't help people the way they think and feel. And that is what they think and feel. And Matt Keenan was exactly right when he said Turnbull is a highly divisive figure. And guess what? He's increasing his divisiveness, uh, in my opinion, by, as I said, getting on the soapbox within day one. Uh, mm, no. Anyway, enough, enough on that. I, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that it's wonderful that he's so in, in favour of renewable energy uh, uh, and so on. It's just uh, how to be effective is not always. There's different ways. 
Fair enough. And look, just um, one other um, interesting point. Um, a good story by Michael Mazengarb on Renew Economy this week about what's happened to or what appears to be happening to the proposals for the revised um, market rules for the national electricity market. And this is absolutely crucial for all technologies for the transition. It's probably just as important, if not more important, than the integrated system plan in laying down a blueprint that can actually sort of evolve with the new technologies. But we're not seeing very much of it. Some recommendations from the Energy Security Board have gone to Taylor's office, Angus Taylor's office, the Federal Energy Minister, it's kind of sitting there. And like many things um, that go into his office, it continues to sit there. We don't have no um, clarity over what will be done and where. And he now is head of this new committee since COAG has more or less sort of disappeared. And he finds himself basically as the sole officer of this committee and with an extraordinary amount of power and influence over what happens to these energy design rules. So quite intriguing we don't know whether this is really bad or but it's once again um the lack of transparency is really unfortunate when we're trying to actually get new market yeah, rules it's, all, rules. it's almost the exact opposite approach giles and equally worse uh, much worse at least turnbull stands up and says what he actually thinks whereas taylor takes it away in my opinion secretly and tries to get nasty stuff done under the table without uh, and sneak it through and the result of and this has been remarked on many times and everyone knows it the result is he's dealt the federal government out of the negotiations and in the process he's taking the ESB uh, uh, with it you know because at the states uh, not been invited to the table so to speak to our knowledge, and this this might be quite wrong, but the way it looks at the outside at the moment to an outsider is that the states have to go their own way because there is no attempt to build a national blueprint or consensus which probably would start with a carbon objective uh, that you could work from. So, so, so this is this is this is just completely and utterly hopeless as far as I'm concerned. And then you've got the energy policy, uh, not the the, the uh, transport policy, being decided by Michael McCormack. Uh, you know, uh, you yeah. know, I mean, that guy's got not going to come up with a policy. He's got enough trouble remembering what his his, his lines that are even when they're on a teleprompter. You know, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the most impressive character. Um, look, God forbid, um, my fear is not so much McCormick, actually, as Angus Taylor in, um, on electric vehicle policy, um, and he doesn't seem to take um, a shine to them at all. David, um, it was a great interview with Logan Goldie Scott. Um, we've probably taken up enough time um, from the listeners, and we do appreciate their um, listening in to this podcast this week. We also thank our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to you, David, for a great interview, and um, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.